Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, and welcome to Thank You, Saturn, with me, Fern Angel Beattie. Thank You, Saturn is a fortnightly podcast on the lesser-discussed topic of the quarter-life crisis. Saturn is the teacher planet, taking on average 30 years to orbit planet Earth. By the time it arrives back to the position it was in when we were born, we are expected to have learned important lessons from the first quarter of our life and be on our intended path. If we are not, this age can be difficult, as Saturn forces us to confront our fears, uprooting our lives in a myriad of ways to push us in the right direction. This is not punishment, but tough love. So if we heed its warnings, once it's off on its galactic trajectory once more, we can finally say, thank you, Saturn. I'll take a look at our guests' birth charts to see whereabouts their Saturn is placed and compare the predictions of this placement to our guests' reality. Today's guest is Aaron Kent, poet and director of independent poetry publisher Broken Sleep Books, as well as the more recent imprint Legitimate Snack, which are smaller, limited edition poetry mixtapes or EPs by writers who are in between releases. He advocates for working class writers as a working class writer himself, as well as all manner of marginalised voices, often raising money for various charities. He is one of those rare publishers who builds connections with his authors and places them at the centre of the publishing process, always looking for ways to ensure the author gets the best and fairest deal possible by signing with Broken Sleep. Aaron has 10 poetry pamphlets published, with the 11th out this year, and 13 including pseudonyms. Hi Aaron, how are you and what have you been up to? I recently finished uh, writing my novel. I came up with the idea for it when I was 16 and then finished... I don't know if I kept changing it. And then about a year ago, I finished writing a first draft, redrafted it. There's uh, interest in it that I won't go too much into, but that interest required it to be required rewrites. Not extensive, but it's taken me a few months and I finished the rewrites and sent it back off again. So uh, I didn't write poetry for a while, for quite a long time during, during the rewrites. It'd been a while since I wrote poetry. And I noticed the day after I finished the rewrites, I suddenly wrote a poem or, you know, the first draft of a poem. How does it feel having finally finished? Because I'm writing a book that's not poetry at the moment and I can imagine that when it's done, there's just like a massive weight off your shoulders. Yeah, I think so. Like the first draft was 60,000 words. The second draft I deleted maybe 10,000 and added another 30,000. So it ended up at 80,000 words. Wow. And there was a kind of a moment at the end where I just sat and looked at the word count for a bit. And the hardest bit to write was the very last sentence took me forever. So when I finally did that and I sent it away, and I breathed a sigh of relief and I was like, phew. And then I got an auto email back from the person who was sent to who said, I'm out of office until a week's time. <laughs> like, oh, Damn it. Yeah, I'm on holiday for a week. And I was like, oh. Yeah, you've got to end on a good note, haven't you? So that it, it's memorable. <laughs> Aaron, you are an Aquarius. Your Saturn is in Capricorn and your Saturn is in the third house. A lot of the guests I've interviewed have had this similar placement, which is quite interesting. It's like a whole load of Capricorns at the moment. And your Saturn return happened in March to December 2018. So casting your mind back to that time, was anything of significance going on in your life? Yeah, that was when... So I've lived, I lived in Cornwall my whole life, born and bred in Red Roof, moved around Truro, St. Austin, etc., I had a short spell in America when I was a submariner and I had a, a short spell in Scotland when I was a submariner, but always lived in Cornwall. It was always my permanent home. And March was when I got the job, I believe it was when I got the job accepted in Wales for an English teacher up here. 
and was when we decided we'd have to move to Wales. Lots of difficult things happened during that time. I don't think it was the most difficult time in my life. That probably happened four or five years before that. But um, it was a lot of change in that time. There was a lot of change. And was that time when you actually moved or it was when you found out you would be moving? So I got the job in March and I moved in September. And then my family, my wife and daughter moved up at the end of October. So speaking of the difficulties at that time, are there any you feel comfortable talking about? It was it was tough. In a, in a strange way, it was tough to leave Cornwall because I'd spent my whole life opposed, not opposed, but kind of not really appreciating Cornwall. As a kid, as a young kid growing up in Redruth, which isn't, which isn't a very good, it wasn't a very good time when I was a kid. There was a lot of violence, drugs, stuff like that. And you always watched on TV like London and all the big cities and everything. And I kind of had that mindset of, you know, Bruce Springsteen, small town living, want to get out of here someday. Mm-hmm. And then when it happened, I'd got to a point where like my daughter was born in Cornwall and uh, I'd kind of started to appreciate Cornwall, especially like things like Cornwall had started to try and make sure its language was getting culturally recognized again and not independence from England as such, but kind of uh, an awareness of its own status as its own cultural minority kind of gave me an identity about Cornwall. And then when I'd finally kind of gone, I, I like Cornwall, I'm proud of Cornwall, it's a nice area, etc. I left it. Mm, so you were way. just getting to that point where... Yeah. So that was that was unusual. That was, you know, it was a strange time. Did you feel disenchanted when you moved to Wales or were you happy that you made that decision? I was very disenchanted. I was, uh, in kind of full disclosure, it wasn't my decision as such. Mm-hmm. So we, Cornwall's expensive. So the, I was looking at a chart earlier where they coloured the areas of Cornwall in yellow for low, orange for medium, red for high. And house prices, for example, are all a dark orange or a bright red. Right. And then it showed the same chart as average wage prices and everything is a really pale yellow. Yellow. Mm. Yeah. Because they're just, Cornwall is the second most deprived area in Western Europe. Pole dark on a horse, topless across the cliffs, all that garbage. And it's the Disneyfication of Cornwall, this idea of Cornwall that it represents this tourism, the second houses, all of that. And I couldn't afford to live in this county that I'd grown up in. So we kind of had to leave because we were never going to be afford, able to afford to live there. I was a media studies, film studies lecturer at the Cornwall's biggest college, and I we were still struggling to get by. Um, so that was that was one of the main reasons. But the other reason was that my wife's mums; she's got two mums. So her her mum and dad broke up when she was six. And then her mum met her other mum and they've been together since. So her mums decided to move house uh, in Cornwall, but they couldn't get anywhere because what they wanted, they wanted some land. And they've been, they started with a like really cheap terraced house in Caddington when like 30 something years ago. And they kept selling and doing up and selling and doing up until they earned enough to get what they wanted. So they moved to Wales. Their plan was to move to Wales. I don't have a family. And this was all the family that Emma has, is her two mums. Right. And we wanted Rue to grow up with family. Of course. With people around her that she knows. And she loves her, her pappy and her nanny. So we, we thought, well, we'll go too. Because then it's best for our daughter, rather than exclude her from family and just have us two. Um, we're going to cherish this family. So I had to move for money. I had to move for family. So it wasn't something I wanted to do. And that's why it was kind of, at first, I was disenchanted about it. Yeah. That makes sense. Would you say that looking back at the person you were when you lived in Cornwall, maybe not because of the move to Wales, but would you say that there's any major changes from the person you were then and the person you are now? That's a very good question. I have never thought about that. But that is something I should. Um, I always liked uh, urban living. So I've always liked living near or around a town or a city. Um, so Redruth's a town. 
uh, when we lived in Truro for a while. That's a city. It's a small city. It's like the 10th smallest city in the UK, but it's a city nonetheless. Mm-hmm. I've always quite liked that lifestyle. And I found that since moving to Wales, like, like I first couldn't sleep unless there were cars rushing by a window. Um, not that I sleep much anyway. But since moving here, I found that I enjoy the silence and the stillness of, of rural living, which I didn't think I'd have. And as a person, I've become probably less precocious, I guess, in a way. Right. But that might be that might be having another child and parenthood, and you you kind of have to put yourself second, maybe. Yeah, I think you become a completely different person. I wouldn't know, but from from what I've heard, that's a kind of before and after of your life, anyway, isn't it? Yeah. Because what I noticed when I had my Saturn return is that when I look back at that person now. It's literally like in a religious sense, was it BC and AD, like completely two different really? Old Testament, New Testament, not trying to um, compare myself to any religious figure at all, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I like that as a, as a, as a thing. <laughs> yeah, it just came to me. I was like, mm, maybe that's my Catholic upbringing. But um, your Saturn is in Capricorn, which is the boss, which is interesting because obviously even though um, you, you're also a teacher, aren't you? Yeah, yeah yeah but you're your own boss in terms of uh, being the director of broken sleep so saturn yeah. is the ruler of capricorn and you have tremendous potential for success and are very ambitious the problem is your brooding and your worries get in the way you torment yourself am i on the right path am i on the wrong path am i too tough or not tough enough these sound like normal capricorn worries but they are magnified when saturn is in this sign Despite your self-doubt, you climb mountain of success, mountain after mountain, goal after goal. Achievement is your middle name. You have moments when you feel weak and afraid, and this can make you controlling rather than in control. Big difference. You may excel in your profession, but fear the mountain of relationship, love, family, or self-development. There are all kinds of ways not to climb. Would you say that this resonates with you at all? Yeah, like I think when you pitch this, I, I like your podcast anyway, even though I, I said to you, I'm, I'm a bit sceptical. You're my first sceptic, so I like that. Good. Good. I, was, I was like, I hope this doesn't exclude me from the podcast. No, Did not I at all. I'm not particularly into astrology. It's just, it's just interesting to explore it. Yeah. My wife was very jealous. She <laughs> is very into astrology and has always wanted this sort of thing for herself. She can be a guest. Um, <laughs> I'll tell her. Yeah, I do. Yeah, like I read that first paragraph, you know, you're brooding on what was getting in the way, you torment yourself, am I on the right path, am I on the wrong path, am I too tough, etc. I read that shortly after I'd added to this long Twitter thread that's been running for like three and a half years of how much I hate my own work. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's just me just like completely trashing myself. Uh, and I did an interview with uh, David Spittle for Light Glyphs and in that i think i started by saying how much i suck as a poet <laughs> so um yeah so self self dial is is 99% of my creative life i spend most most of my time the majority of my time uh criticizing myself and even to the point where someone will post send me an email or post something on twitter or something in which they'll praise me or something i've written or something like that sort of thing and my first thought will be what do they want oh wow <laughs> yeah, interesting they want something so it's sycophantic maybe they like broken sleep and they want to be published they're not doing it because they like my work they're doing it because they want something in return or because it's it's what you should do or just you know that sort of thing. So I don't. I find it very difficult to believe praise about my own work. Did you feel this way even before Broken Sleep was as known as it is? Because what excuse did you give yourself then if people complimented your work? I ran a small press before Broken Sleep called uh, "I Came Here Looking for a Fight," mm-hmm. which I still think is a superb name. This is the um, one you were doing in the you started doing in the cassette tapes, wasn't it? No, Broken Sleep started with cassette tapes. Ah, Broken Sleep started with cassette tapes, right. Yeah, and then I was like, well, this makes no sense because it takes me hours to make one tape work and I'm never going to be able to fulfil orders. 
Shame though, isn't um, it? <laughs> yeah, they were quite they were quite nice. They just weren't as as good as I wanted them to be. But this was one I started a few years before where I did everything out of an office printer with recycled card and whatever paper I could get my hands on. Then I released Subsequent Death, which was my debut pamphlet, which I generally don't really talk about much anymore because it's so different to anything I do. And it's really odd. So The Rink came out and then Bampy. And I just think I was looking at it and thinking, people liked Subsequent Death because... It was strange. It had different colours, text across the page, different sizes. That's why. So the the content isn't very good, but the con or the content, what to look at is better than the context itself. The words mm-hmm. are garbage. Uh, the rink had all this stuff around it, and people just liked it because of that. Um, I always had a thing where I said I'd write a poem, and I wonder how long it will take me to hate it. <laughs> oh wow! And what's the answer so wrote- on average? <laughs> day wow Aaron (laughs) I wrote a line in a new poem I'm working on a poem that's about 10 pages long at the moment um and I wrote a line in it that I'm really proud of I'll tell you it you can have the podcast exclusive of it oh wow brilliant so it's just it's two lines I really like it it's changes in nature are determined by developers of air conditioning systems the dead are trapped in the snow and I really like that. I thought it was a good line. I like and that I, too. And I don't want anything from you. You've already published my book. That's a very <laughs> yes. good line. Straight up. <laughs> but I kind of like, I re- and I still like it. And that's the first time in a long time where I've done something and still like it. It's been about three or four days, I think. So Maybe that's less to do with, I'm sure you've written many lines that are just as good as that. Maybe that's... How, how about maybe it's more to do with your actually becoming more confident in your work? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. This is the happiest I've ever felt with pamphlets I've released this year. So I'm still quite proud of Melatonin Spring Collection um, because I think it achieved what I wanted it to achieve, which was a state of uh, flux in sleep, which was probably written... Just around the time of the beginning of the Saturn return. Ah. Yeah. So it's probably January 2018 to midway through. And I wasn't, I wasn't sleeping very well. I've had night terrors my entire life. Yes, I read uh, that in an interview you gave. From a very young age, terrible, terrible night terrors. So I'd wake up screaming. I'd see things and I'd go to, like, someone would be attacking me and I'd get to punch back and they're not there and I'd break my fist on the wall or I'd try and kick down a door to get out and I'd kick and kick and kick and the door wouldn't open. But it's because there is no door. I'm just kicking the wall until my foot's broken. And it was really, really tough. And it's common for night terrors to occur two to three times a month. But up until a few years ago, up until maybe a year ago even, they were two to three times a night was a calm night. Melatonin Spring Connection kind of came from that idea. And Rue was little and she was going through her... So children have sleep progressions where they forget how to sleep properly. So you think, oh, I've nailed it with this child. They're sleeping great. And then they forget. Usually because their brain has changed the way they sleep. Like they they now dream or they've now got a longer REM focus and they're not used to this. So that changed and my sleep was already messed up and I was kind of in this mid state every night of not being able to sleep but seeing my daughter sleep by us and in a state of wonderment loss and all of this sort of stuff with sleep and that's what I wanted to get to with Melatonin Spring Collection and we were moving but it looked like I was going to be moving alone and I was getting through the night of sleep because I had my family by me but soon I'd be sleeping without my family by me in a new job in a different country technically. Melatonin Spring Collection was an attempt for me to uh, evoke that lack of stability. Um, So it misses a lot of solidity in the poems. And I think I did okay doing that. Do you read your work back often? Not, Not that often. I revisited the rink for the first time maybe a week ago, and that was the first time in two years. Um, it's odd isn't it yeah I was like oh this is okay this isn't okay this is okay this isn't okay but I don't I don't know I don't I haven't looked at a melatonin spring collection in a while I was thinking maybe if you looked at it you could 
you could see considering that's meant to be the Saturn that's your Saturn return collection in a way maybe you could see more clearly looking back on it the the actual changes you went through at the time yeah yeah that makes sense and I read a lot from Melatonin Spring Collection as well though so uh, I did a few readings for it and I don't really do many readings but Invisible Hand or a new press and uh, I really wanted to promote that for them and stuff like that so I did a lot of I did a, and it was easier because it was Zoom so I did oh yeah of Zoom. course yeah so I revisited the poems quite a bit so I have that's probably my most reread collection do you have any experiences where you have meant to come across as in control but because you felt like you were on the back foot you've come across as controlling be that in your role as a teacher family or even as director of broken sleep so i read this out to my wife and there is a bit about control not controlling and my wife said you are the least controlling person i've ever met oh really it's not common i praise myself but i think my patience is my greatest asset i think i'm extremely patient and i um i don't try to I really don't try to control others because I kind of, I'm really of the mindset that as long as you're not hurting people, then cool, happy days. I probably need to be a bit more controlling, actually. Do you think the reasons that you might not is because you worry about what others think or are you genuinely just so laid back that you don't mind? Uh, I just genuinely want other people to be happy. Mm -hmm. You get the best out of people that way. Yeah, and if someone like someone's like, I really want to do this thing, or uh, I really want to go there, I'll think, well, I'll make them happy, and that'll make me happy. So that's that's enough for me. I probably shouldn't do it as much with authors. I imagine a good, uh, I imagine lots of publishers would say I should stand my ground more. But like, if an author wants a certain way in their book or wants to do a certain thing and it's not something we've done before i've got to try i will go okay i'll give it a go i'll give it a go oh you did that for my title with the pastel colors which i really appreciated because funny enough before i submitted that when i was sending it off to people i just had this vision of what i wanted my cover to look like but i knew that it was rare it would look how i wanted because most presses have their own way of doing things whether it's a certain picture or whatever but you actually managed to to give me as close to what I wanted as possible. Cause I just literally wanted like black background and then pastel colors. So oh, thank you for that. See, that's the sort of thing. <laughs> We've never really experimented with changing our font color before. And you said, Oh, can we do this? This this, this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like it's your book, like the person more so than even the readers who buy it. The person who I want to be happy with their book is you. Because I've noticed that for the world and that's your giving. And in that sense, I wouldn't want you to give something out that you don't want the world to have. That's lovely. And I think that's why, even though you say maybe you should be more controlling, you've actually established uh, uh, not just obviously a platform, but you're, I think you're quite known for being that way. Like you always build connections, as I said in your intro with your authors. And in, in that way, they feel like they can trust you. You're not just a, a, a corporate well obviously you're not going to be a corporation because you're an independent company but beyond that there's always uh, conversations going on you ask people questions you do threads you do polls sometimes you're always raising money for charity and i think i've often seen i think the latest one i even saw was today someone praising you um for your work with broken sleep and how you always people want to publish with you specifically and it's not just broken sleep but it's you because you are the face of that and um, i've certainly felt that from you yeah, I had a, a one where people were praising me for rejecting people on Twitter. I saw that! How amazing is that? <laughs> and I was like, that's such a weird thing for me to uh, be happy with. They're like, oh, people are happy with how I reject. I don't even use the word reject, actually, when I, when I turn people down. There you go. Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's how I want to be seen. It's important because it's the rejections that are remembered sometimes even more than the acceptances because that's what people play over in their head and it might be the difference between someone continuing or someone giving up. Yeah, and I kind of, every time I turn someone down, I hope that in three months, in six months, in a year, they come back to email me and say, you were wrong. And I get to turn around and say, you're right, I can't wait to buy your book. That's what I want. That's a great ethos to have. Yeah. It says you may excel in your profession, but you fear the mountain of relationships, love, family, or self-development. Now, um, 
I'm not going to go too much into that itself, but in terms of balancing all of those, because I understand you're a teacher, but then when you're, I'm not sure whether when you're working on broken sleep, you're at home, but I've noticed obviously you're on Twitter a lot. You're always engaging. So it makes sense when you say that you're known for your patients because to balance everything, particularly during lockdown must've been crazy. So how do you find that balance? And is there a clear divide between your family time and your work time? Or do they, have you found a way of making them blend together? There's a, a theory that's been popping up a little bit recently that I have a time machine. Um, <laughs> while I can neither confirm nor deny. No, I joke that in having insomnia and ADHD helps. Right. Because you're not sleeping, but at least you've got energy. Yeah. Um, but that's not, that's not really, ca- I think you have to, you have to choose what you're going to sacrifice. So like I get up at five with my daughter we watch Hey Dougie or Masher and the Bear that she likes at the moment. Um, then my son will cry and wake up in a bit and then we'll play with him or we'll have breakfast, me, my daughter, and my son. So my wife can have a bit of a line because although I do get up during the night when she's got to feed out, I get up with her. Um, I'm not the one who's doing that feeding. I'm not mm. one who's doing that. I'm just sitting there and trying my best to keep my eyes open. <laughs> so I figured she usually gets up at seven so I, a couple, she can have a couple of hours lying happy days fine and, and I don't need to sleep that much whereas she loves she loves her sleep um so I get a couple of hours of the kids in the morning and then like if I work I'll have to leave now at seven and I won't get back till about six so that's why those two hours are really important for me but during the day like I'll take a couple of hours to do novel or poetry writing I'll stay connected through twitter uh, we played in the garden with the kids during today. I've done a bit of poetry writing with I leave my laptop open on the side. I did the orders for Broken Sleep, uh, which my wife does all the post stuff, but I have to print out all the order stuff. Fixed the problem with finances. I've got the Arts Council sent in. Um, I made dinner. I made pasta for dinner. Pasta pesto. Very good. Uh, played with the chickens for a bit. Oh, you've got chickens? I, yeah, we've got seven. That's the pros of living in Wales. That is. Um, and then, because we're all vegetarian and uh, very pro-animal rights, so the mm. idea is we've rescued some chickens from bad areas. Nice. Um, and still, I will find time to play Animal Crossing with my wife, to do this podcast. We've watched three episodes of How I Met Your Mother, and I will read as well. Yeah, and that's because- insane for one day. Yeah, exactly. That's it. A lot of people are like, what? How? So I don't really miss out on much. I make Except sure I time. <laughs> yeah, I get about six hours a night if I'm lucky now. But the key, I think, is I think people aren't really willing to sacrifice things. I've been thinking about it a lot recently. Like, I don't watch a lot of my own telly. I don't sit down and watch much telly. So Emma we'll watch TV, we'll watch a bit of TV in bed with her. It's usually her program. At the moment, she's watching How I Met Your Mother because I finally convinced her to watch it. But while that's on, I might get some finances or order stuff done and focus on my laptop and that as well. So I don't watch my own telly much. So that's a sacrifice I've had to make. Um, I don't... I don't really play video games. It's only really Animal Crossing and that's if the telly's on. I'm not really a big video game anyway. You just, I think the key is to make sacrifices. Mm-hmm. I have to choose. And I don't, I don't sit around and stare into space a lot, figure out what to do next. I just, just do always busy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it helps when you love what you're doing. And if that thing happens to be creative, you don't feel like you need to fill in the creative gaps with like TV, for example, because you're kind of, I, I notice when I'm writing, I'm not as bothered as, I went about two years about watching TV. I watch it now because my partner watches a lot of TV and we get into stuff together. But when I was writing, I wouldn't need to watch TV because it was all going on in my head. That was my TV time. And then yeah. the, the more you're into what you're doing creatively, I could go a whole night and not sleep and not notice it. Whereas if I was getting up to work my office job, I would. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, I was living at my job up until lockdown because mm-hmm. I was a housemaster, which... What's uh, that? So I, I'm an English teacher full time. I'm a drama teacher full time for GCSE and A level. Both so subjects, all... Aaron. You, there isn't anything <laughs> you don't do. <laughs> I know, and I'm also actually a trained media studies and film studies teacher as well. Um, so I, 
I was, I'm that, and uh, I was a housemaster, which meant that we lived in a flat. Me, Emma, Rue, and Otis was born during this period. We lived in a flat in the college, and in the flat, I was the in charge of 43 teenage boys who wow. lived there as a, as a boarding school. So anything that went wrong, I had to deal with. We had duties. So two nights a week, I was usually out there, but the other ones, you had duty staff who'd come and do a night a week. Um, but like, that was kind of my, my job was to also do that side of it. And I was working, I was doing broken sleep at the time. Like your book was released and published and typeset and designed and all that during this period. So I was doing that at the time with a newborn baby and a two year old and, um, working probably a like one week i worked 125 hours in the school whilst during a release week while i also typeset a different book and managed to get the poetry book society submissions off and while i like juggled that because it meant i didn't have to leave for work till eight in the morning usually i'd get up at seven to i'd go into work at seven to wake all the lads up but then i could go back home and see my family a lot it was still really tough because that's a lot of work. It's a lot yeah. of hours work. But now that we've moved, I'm about an hour away from work. So my difficulty now is going to come in from, I need to be at work at eight in the morning. So I need to leave here just before seven and I'll finish work at five. So I won't get back till about six ish. Mm. And my daughter and son go to bed about six ish. Ah. So my struggle now is going to become in about five days a week. I won't get to spend much time with my children. Yeah. And that's where my, my nerves are at the moment. Bless you. Yeah, it sounds like a massive juggling act. But I'm sure you can do it, considering all the stuff you've done in the past <laughs> or the stuff you do normally. And at least, I guess, from having this time with them in lockdown, you've kind of got a condensed, immersive experience with your kids that can kind of alleviate some normal guilt that you might feel. Yeah, and I kind of... Broken Sleep's doing so well that I am on the verge of being able to take it full-time but wow yeah it's doing it's like I, it's also because i don't ask for much like full time isn't like hard oh, need fifty thousand pound a year it's not no no but hard. you can live on it yeah yeah and i probably could take the leap but i want we're we're going up to four books a month next year so we were releasing one collection every month two pamphlets every month and a prose book every month fiction non-fiction on alternating months fiction on odd months non-fiction on even months and three anthologies throughout the year so there's 51 books next year at the moment we release two books a month so we're more than doubling our output so if on two books a month i can almost go full time my hope is that doubling that output which isn't the intention wasn't to double it and go full time. The intention was because we were doing so many pamphlets and not very many collections. And I always wanted to release collections and I always wanted to go nonfiction and fiction anyway. Mm -hmm. But I think if, if things carry on that way, then maybe in a year or so I'll be ready to take that leap, which would mean a lot more time at home with the kids and um, being able to balance my personal creativity with broken sleep creativity with my family, etc. That's incredible. So, and after how many years is that? Uh, Sleep started two and a half years ago. But now that is incredible. Two and a half years. It often takes a lot longer than that. Yeah, I I don't know. I kind of see this is me refusing to take pro. <laughs> take the compliment. I kind of I always I think I don't know. I look at it and I go. I I still find it strange when people really praise Broken Sleep. Someone tweeted the other day that they were in an anthology and they were oh my god I can't believe I get to be in an anthology about Kent and I thought. But like, I'm just like some bloke at home eating a digestive biscuit with an espresso. Like, <laughs> what? Why me? Like, of all the names on that anthology that were great, and you picked mine. That's a good combo, though. Digestive and espresso. I think I think that's someone yeah. you'd want to be in an anthology <laughs> with. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Just... I do think everyone feels that way, though. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
Your gift is your nurturing nature, but you nurture with teeth. You love like a fierce, protective papa bear, pushing away any and all who would threaten you in your keep. You defend and protect not only your family, but also any vulnerable soul you meet. You are akin to a soldier or a sailor, excelling at standing watch, guarding people and possessions and plans from day until night and back again. Your arms, no, your entire body and soul, were made for keeping us safe. Generous and giving, when you love, you love 100% and you don't hold back. Your supportive and comforting disposition is a blank of peace for your closest confidants your friends become family in you they feel safe and at home now in terms of broken sleep and what i said earlier about you being someone who uh, not only provides a platform for writers but you build a connection with your authors too i know that you have you advocate for working class writers but also all types of marginalized voices you raised was it four thousand for black lives matter or did five, it end up being more than that five and a half which is incredible and you're always looking for ways to try and capitalize on um which in what ways broken sleep can help platforms that are in need of it and uh, the marginalized voices so i can see that you do have a nurturing nature in terms of wanting to protect the protect the underdog and give them a platform so how much of this is to do with your working class upbringing and what obstacles do you feel that you have come across as a working class writer um I think that being working class has hindered me in so many ways. Um, Like when I started doing poetry readings and stuff, I remember one bloke who was like, I can't really understand what you're saying because you don't speak proper. Yeah. And I was like, but like, this is my voice. The poetry Mm. is my voice. I'm, giving you my voice like so i did start doing readings like um your gift is your nature and you love with teeth and it didn't work because <laughs> yeah. I mean, poetry voice <laughs> yeah and I, I hated it yeah so i i had to learn to love my accent um and it used to rile me up when you see poets who who ain't working class who have got that good money and use that accent to kind mm-hmm. of to depict something i'm not mm-hmm. going to name names but you know we were yeah know. yeah um but i look at things like i went to some cruddy school that was near the bottom of the nationwide school rankings that once had a riot in a school day where a kid had his spine broken by being hit with a motorcycle helmet and other kids locked themselves in the library and hid under tables wow that there was a kid in a science lesson who didn't turn up and we the teacher said, where's so-and-so? And someone said, oh, he's out the window being arrested. And the police had found rocks of bricks of cocaine under his moped scooter. Kid I went to school with was arrested for the biggest drug bust in Cornish history. Another kid stabbed his stepdad 60-something times on Christmas Eve. Jesus! Another, yeah, another kid who had the same first name as me went into a house at two in the morning. He was in all my classes. And then after we left school, he had a daughter at this point. He went into a house at two in the morning. The mum let him in for some reason. He was a bit drunk. He went upstairs to use their toilet, saw the mum's 15-year-old son in bed and stabbed him 40 times. The kid survived. He went downstairs. The mum tried to stop him. He slashed the mum. She survived. He ran away. He's now serving 25 years in jail. And I was just some kid that I knew. I fought him once and I won the fight, thankfully. It makes me feel okay. Um, and I used, to ha- I used to have to fight a lot. So I always, always, always had fist fights which is something that surprises people who know me because I seem really gentle. And I am, I am but I, I fought a lot. No, well, needs must. If you're being confronted, you have to at some yeah. point. And it meant I made friends with loads of like different gangs. Like the jocks like me, the stoners like me, the goths like me. Because I'd fight them and then we'd become friends. That was how I made friends with people. <laughs> um, and then you're doing all that. And then your teacher, like our English teacher, I remember was trying to not be locked in the cupboard or try to teach what people are throwing chairs on the room. You're not going to learn Seamus Heaney like they always teach or how to write a sonnet or anything when your teacher's struggling just to get you through the lesson. Mm-hmm. I was predicted straight A's in year seven. And my report said, if Aaron doesn't get straight A's, I will be surprised. And in year 11, my predictions had gone down so much that my report said, if Aaron passes with a single C, I'd be surprised. Mm. I got six C's, two D's, an F and a U. Um, and a B, I got a B in English. But that's how, when you're doing that, 
you're not you're not learning to write poetry you're not yeah. learning literature you're not learning intersectionality you're not making connections with people who are going to help your career what you're left with is the potential and the belief that if you're lucky you might earn enough money that you get a semi-detached instead of a terrace house mm -hmm. that's kind of what you kind of are led into your and prospects become smaller yeah yeah and i don't know that's the kind of thing that i think people especially in creative arts the working class are given no no hope whatsoever and when you see people who aren't working class who are appropriating that culture that voice that style that life and profiting and, from it yeah and you think you don't get to do this and take this and be this and make money and uh profit both in terms of finances but also career development mm -hmm. while shaking hands with the rich backstage because you had your oxbridge education yeah and your oxbridge education was paid for because your daddy's got good money or your mummy's got good money you don't get to do that because you're not real and the people who are real are not being given a platform you're taking the platform and using our voices and i think i don't think i wrote a good poem until i was 26 maybe 27 my poetry was garbage it was so bad because i just never had no one ever taught me poetry because when you're a working class kid they're not teaching you poetry they're teaching you how to make a living how to like i helped rob my first house when i was like nine years old and i didn't wow. even know i was doing it some bloke was like I left my keys or I left my wallet in my grand's house. Could you help get it out? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we were on this date and I put my hand through the letterbox with my coat hanger and opened the door for him. Said, thanks, cheers. And then it was never his house. <laughs> it was yeah. some house. And that's like, that's what you learn as a kid. You learn like how to break into a house or um, how to rewire something or that sort of thing. You don't learn the magnum opus of Shakespeare or so how Iliad. did you get back into that or did you deep down did you ever stray from knowing that you definitely wanted to make something of yourself or how did you get back onto the track of learning poetry and lo loving literature if you were taken off course um I so when I was 16 I liked a girl and I her boyfriend wrote her poetry he was also called Aaron so I wrote her a poem I've told the story so many times but I wrote her a poem and then the next week she gave it back and her boyfriend had annotated it and edited it for me to make it <laughs> <laughs> and it was a love poem for his girlfriend which is a <laughs> on his behalf that is a that's good funny poem. that's impressive um, and from there on out and it was also it was a rip off of the poem from 10 Things I Hate About You so <laughs> you know it was garbage so that's what I started. And I started writing really terrible rhyming poetry. One was um, a busy house, a busy street, a thousand footsteps, but still no feet. I sit alone and wonder why it always rains, but my cheeks stay dry. I ponder life's inadequacies and I wonder about my own. As I sit here in this lonely street, my town, my world, my home. That's bad. Did you tweet that the other day? No, I tweeted a drip, drip dropping of emotional rain drip, drip, dropping of emotional pain yeah 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 <laughs> i mean it's amazing that you can even remember this i've been blocking yeah. stuff that i hate <laughs> from my memory i wish i could block that That's <laughs> as a punishment but that was so bad and then when i joined the navy because I another was... thing that he's done added to the repertoire by the way <laughs> yeah I left, I left home at 16 or 17 and got my own flat and I couldn't really afford it. And I was working in Nero and very sorry, Cafe Nero, but I, after shift would finish, I'd have a panini. I stay in, have a panini because I couldn't afford to eat. I had no food at home and I was broke and I was starving or like the bank were chasing me for massive debts I'd rung up. So I'd have to go down and like stay into work late and then ring up the bank from behind the counter, tucked down to try and get by and going up to this box flat in this scummy courtyard where my neighbor on my left worked nights two nights a week but kept a night a nocturnal routine the rest of the time so five nights a week would be blaring oasis who i hate <laughs> and the other neighbors were 
uh, a Romanian woman and a Russian guy. Um, so yeah, I had terrible neighbours in a box flat. It was a living room conjoined with a kitchen and a bedroom conjoined with a bathroom. And that was it. And I was paying a fortune for it, like £500 a month in Truro in this garbage flat. Nero wanted me to be a trainer for the entire country. So travel around to teach people how to make coffee because I was like a barista of the year finalist and a barista maestro. So I was doing all the patterns and the top-notch coffees and all that. Um, and then the recession hit and that job was no longer a job. So I had to go back to my store where they'd already hired a new assistant manager. So they had no hours for me. And I was struggling because I had no money, no hours, and I saw a sign for the Navy. And I'm very anti-Trident, and I thought I wasn't very political back then, though. And I joined up, and I ended up on submarines. <laughs> so I just kind of stopped writing poetry, because you don't really have time to write when you're in the Navy. So I just stopped. I didn't write poetry. I didn't uh, read poetry. I've always read novels, but that was it. And then I le- when I left the Navy, I didn't know what to do with myself. I became a teaching assistant, and I realized how much I truly loved the written word. And I decided to try to go to university, but I had no A-levels. And my GCSEs, as I've said earlier, were garbage. So I tried to apply anyway and hoped that the weird little random qualifications I earned in the Navy would be good enough. Like I got an apprenticeship in public services given to me in the Navy for something. I guess the Navy qualifies that. And, uh, and then I redid my A-levels as I was working as a teacher. So I redid the exam and stuff as a teaching assistant. And then that was just enough to get me onto the course. And I remember the head of the course took me to one side after the interview and he said, I'm going to take a shot on you. Don't let me down because I will kick you off. I have the slightest chance that you do not care about this course. But I'm going to take a chance on you. And I went to university and that's where I learned to read more. And Incredible. Yeah. And then I did spoken word stuff, which I was I was bad. And, uh, yeah, I was like garbage. And I got a bad review once. The people liked it, but that's because they were just, I would speak so fast and rhyme so fast that they weren't really following it. So they were just saying they liked it. And I had a review and the guy just tore it apart because he tore apart a written review of it, a written version of my spoken word stuff. He was like, this guy, this makes no sense. This is a garbage metaphor. This is rubbish. And I was so angry. And then I realized he was right was so right and I thought I'm not going to write again for a little while I'm just going to read and read and read and that's what I did and then I was finally said I think I'm ready to try writing again nice so it was a long winding roundabout road back to where you needed to be yeah exactly yeah (laughs) so the last thing we wanted to talk about is just that Saturn is in the third house for you which is interesting because it says it makes communication serious and molasses slow but it's also the house of writing. So it will be a good discipline for those who write or dream of writing. Perfect. That's what you are. On the other hand, their writing won't flow easily or randomly like someone with dreamy Neptune in their third house. And they probably won't embellish the facts like someone with their Jupiter there. Saturn in the third house is a storyteller, but their stories are most likely the truth, the hard truth and nothing but. Their writing may be too bare bones because Saturn will remove any flourishes that make their writing fun to read. Now, I thought that was interesting because your writing is certainly not bare bones. You've got a lot of unique flourishes for want of a better word. You set yourself challenges in terms of how you're going to write something like you've had your manifesto which you posted on twitter the other day and you even wrote one of your books in a made-up language which i didn't know how to pronounce so would you say that that you're still getting to the truth and that there are bare bones underneath that or would you think that that's incorrect Mm, um i think so when we say about truth obviously truth being as subjective as it is Mm. um I think my, a lot of my writing, I am trying to write or to an extent writing about a lot of my early writing books released are about my uh, trauma and stuff like that. So uh, Tertiary Colours, for example, was um, when I left the Navy, uh, I'd been sexually assaulted by a chief in the Navy and I um, didn't know what to do. It was a really, it was, obviously mm-hmm. it was a horrific, horrific thing. Of course. And um, 
so I left the Navy because they, they said they shouldn't have taken me anyway because my night terror. So I was screaming all night as well. Um, and I, I drank a lot and I just wasted my time and wasted my days. And uh, I had a thing, depersonalization disorder, where I'd stopped being able to recognize reality. And I kind of describe it as, it was like I was a robot performing daily actions and I was removed from myself watching myself do this. Um, and I decided I would uh, end things um, by driving my car into a wall because I didn't want to hurt anybody else. So I didn't want to drive into another car because it would mean other people were hurt and I didn't want to drive into a pedestrian area because other people would get hurt. I had to do it into a wall in the middle of nowhere where it wouldn't affect anyone except sorry to the person who had to pay to rebuild the wall. But uh, I stopped at the last minute. I swerved at the last minute and I didn't do it. And instead decided to break up with the person I was with because she wasn't very good to me. In times, In time, I've learned that I feel it was because we we were together from 17 and we were together quite young mm-hmm. and neither of us really knew how to be in a relationship mm-hmm. and I like I guess I still am but I'm better I'm firmer but I was like a pushover and she could get away with whatever she wanted and at the young age you kind of just that's the relation and my parents weren't a good example of what to be in a relationship right and i just kind of didn't want to go back home to them so i just i was like i'll accept whatever happens to me and i thought well i can't do this anymore i have to i have to try and achieve something with my life so i i left her and i remember driving home and i was listening to a modest mouse song past parting of the sensory which is a really good song and it was like a balloon i felt like a balloon had inflated above my head and it was like my worries and it had popped it exploded and i was finally free and that was when i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna relax and i'm gonna just get to know myself because i've spent so long kind of hiding all these things that have happened to me that it's time that i came to terms with those bare bones with that truth good for you yeah and i went to group group therapy well i went to cbt therapy and it didn't work for me and i went to talkie therapy and it was really working really well it was really good and then he put a chair in front of me and said your younger version is sat on that chair talk to them mm. and you apparently shouldn't do this apparently this is quite unsafe if you're if you don't trust each other yet. and i didn't want to do this but he encouraged it and it was it was horrible i just wanted to attack my younger self and hated my younger self and i never went back and then I eventually discovered group therapy for Cornwall Rape and Sexual Assault Centre. And there are two uh, areas, uh, men and women, to just kind of, so that you'd be in a single sort of group of people in a similar experience, which I always found sh- it made sense because you didn't want, you didn't want a group therapy with men and women into Lincoln where women have been through so many horrible things with men usually as men as the perpetrators of the crime but the in the male group it was always men who had done these things mainly it was men who had done these things to men mm-hmm. so trying to open up about these horrible experiences with like big men and stuff and there are other big men around you so it was quite difficult but yeah. i opened up and it, i did that for two years and then when rue was born i went to two more and i didn't need it anymore but group therapy just completely saved my life it completely completely saved my life because i was able to share my experiences other people had similar experiences or different experiences i had a place i could go to all the time i raised money for them but they shut down unfortunately Krasak. um and then tertiary colors i wrote was the first poetry book i ever wrote even though it was like the fourth one released and that is heavily uh, that's probably the bare bones book that's heavily my truth my traumas it's called a tertiary colors a post-traumatic uh, verse and it was all that sort of thing um a really really in-depth about stuff i'd been through and me come overcoming it and it felt like once once i'd written that 
I haven't I haven't needed to write that again yeah you can add flourishes and you can experiment in different ways because everything's on paper like you've released yeah. it in a way yeah oh. and I've, I've done that now so I can I can look at other things and um I don't need to like that stuff that happened we can be brought into a poem as a as a circumstantial thing or the whole thing or whatever but I don't need to spill that onto paper anymore because I yeah. can I can flourish it like you say Wow, that's incredible. I wasn't expecting an answer like that, but it's really interesting to see the things it explains here about bare bones writing, blah, blah, blah. You're kind of looking at it for, from this perspective of someone who hasn't had their Saturn return yet. So it's telling you what you would imagine will happen to them. And then we're looking at it from retrospectively. So in a way, this is saying how you were before. And yeah. The fact that it says you would have difficulty adding flourishes to things and the fact that you now do, it's almost like you've, you've, if you believe in that and you're not a skeptic, that you've, you've successfully transitioned from your Saturn return, which I think just from listening to you, it's clear that you have all the stuff you've overcome where you are now. Um, it says you're one of the most stable people of the Zodiac. Now I'm not, I'm not in a position to say you're, you're stable. <laughs> so that's for you to decide. But in terms of how yeah. you come across and in the, the way you speak about your family and what you've got going for you, which is a whole lot, it sounds like you have successfully completed your Saturn return. And it also <laughs> says here that, um, which I think is important for you who can't take a compliment, that you long for a life of honour. You have one. You long to be the boss. You are the boss. So I think that's a... A nice place to end it but I wanted to ask you if you could speak to yourself if you could tell yourself one thing from the age of 27 or around the time of your Saturn return that you didn't know then and you do now what would you say um, I think I would just say that it's all going to be okay Mm-hmm. It's all. It's all going to be good. My my mother, one of my mother-in-laws, Emma's non-biological mum, she says this too will pass, and I think uh, I never really got that as such, but now I do kind of get it. Like those moments, those pain, that stuff, that's going to pass. And I think I just, uh, or actually, I'd probably tell myself, move into Wales, maybe the best thing we ever do. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's probably what I tell myself actually. Oh, thanks, Aaron. That was such a lovely, honest interview. I really appreciate it. I love a, I love a good interview. <laughs> With good questions, that's the key. That's the key to an interview. Oh, good. I'm glad. I mean, I have to admit, I did have help from the woman who wrote the book. That's all from Thank You Saturn today. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at Godzilla Kent. And you can follow Broken Sleep at Broken Sleep on Twitter and at Broken Sleep Books on Instagram. Check out brokensleepbooks.com so that you can have a look at all of the different authors Aaron publishes. There's a myriad of gorgeous books available, including, if I do say so myself, my very own, The Art of Shutting Up. You can buy Aaron's most recent release, Harbour Equinox, through Samson Low, and his new collection is out next month, titled Perfectly Reasonable Justifications for Nuclear Apocalypse Through and False Fire, which you can get from fathomsum.com, F-A-T-H-O-N-S-U-N. More thank yous to Eliza Einhorn for writing The Little Book of Saturn, Ara Cho for the artwork, Phil Donnelly for the jingle, and if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. You can look out for future episodes everywhere you get your podcast by searching Thank You Saturn.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.